Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Air Warrior podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thomas. And this week, we turn our attention to the upcoming 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, speaking with a former U.S. Air Force pilot on his experiences of that fateful day and his role in policing U.S. airspace in the days that followed. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. Another UK defence company could be snapped up by a US headquartered competitor following Parker Hannafin's announcement that it had reached an agreement on a £6.3 billion cash acquisition of aerospace systems manufacturer Megit. The deal remains subject to regulatory clearances and approval by Megit shareholders, which had revenues of approximately $3.2 billion in 2020 and has more than 9,000 employees around the world, including 2,000 in the United Kingdom. Parker, meanwhile, reported sales of $13.7 billion and net income of $1.21 billion for its most recently completed fiscal year. The official announcement also stated Parker would continue to implement Megit's previously publicly announced global footprint consolidation strategy, reducing Megit's footprint by a total of 50% from its 2016 baseline by 2023. The U.S. State Department has made a determination approving the possible foreign military sale to Israel of CH-53K heavy-lift helicopters with support and related equipment for an estimated cost of $3.4 billion. Delivering the required certification to notify the U.S. Congress on July the 30th, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency revealed the request from Israel included the purchase of up to 18 CH-53K heavy-lift helicopters, 60 T-408GE 400 engines, and up to 36 embedded GPS inertial navigation system with selected availability anti-spoofing modules. The DSCA stated the proposed sale would improve the Israel Air Force's capability to transport armoured vehicles, personnel and equipment in support of distributed operations. The expectation was for Israel to use the aircraft as a deterrent to regional threats and that the proposed sale would not alter the basic military balance in the region. And finally, following the completion of the last operational flight of the UK's E3D Century Fleet, the UK Ministry of Defence is turning its attention to the potential sale or disposal of the aircraft and ensuring crews are ready to take up the E7 wedge shell replacements from 2023. In an August 4 release, the UK Royal Air Force revealed that E3D Century ZH-101 of 8 Squadron landed at RAF Waddington to close a 30-year operational service of the type. Alongside the other remaining RAF E3D, ZH-103, ZH-101 was deployed to RAF Akrotiri, Cyprus for the platform's final deployment. A UK Ministry of Defence spokesperson told Key Aero that as the aircraft were in differing states, a range of sales and disposal options being considered, including sale of the mission-capable aircraft, commercial sales leading to reconfiguration, or the teardown in situ at RAF Waddington to enable sale of spares and components. And that was the news. Time now to turn our attention to Assistant Editor Joseph Campion, who is in conversation with former U.S. Air Force Colonel Paul Strickland to get his insight into U.S. air operations in the hours and days after the 9-11 attacks. With the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 fast approaching, today we will gain first-hand knowledge of what it was like to be serving member of the United States Air Force during and post this tragic event. 
Here with me today is Colonel Paul Sticky Strickland, US Air Force retired. He will inform us of his involvement as an F-16 pilot and commander at Hill Air Force Base during one of the most notorious terror attacks in global history. We will then later go on into his first assignment as a serving A-10 pilot RAF Benwaters. Um, hopefully will tell us more about his career throughout his whole USAF serving. So, Sticky, you were a serving airman on the F-16 at the time of the attacks. Where were you at the time, and what was it like to be a serving airman within the United States Air Force on the day of September 11th, 2001? First, I appreciate the, um, the seriousness of the podcast, because obviously 9-11 affected the entire world. And, uh, you know, all of us remember where we were and what we were doing. It, uh, it is parallel to Pearl Harbor. It is parallel to any catastrophic major world event, and you certainly remember it. So I was the operational support squadron commander at Hill Air Force Base in the 388th Fighter Wing, and that meant that I was a current and operational F-16 pilot, but I commanded a squadron that did not have F-16s. I was the support squadron that supported the three other operational squadrons. And that morning, actually, I was uh, in our fitness center on the treadmill, and I had uh, typically my five-mile run was somewhere near the end, and I there's a television on over in the corner. And uh, first inclination was, wow, look at what an idiot did with a Cessna running into one of the World Trade Center buildings. And then suddenly, obviously, the realization hit me when I saw the second airplane hit the second tower that this was not a small airplane. This was something catastrophic, and we were probably going to go into a very high threat mode very rapidly. Well, no sooner had I hopped off the treadmill and kind of glued like everybody to some of the graphic photos uh, coming across the wire that uh, the wing commander called down and said, get everybody to the command post right now. So all of us squadron commanders huddled in the command post and uh, it was determined rather quickly that we would, without really a lot of guidance from higher headquarters, because there was a lot of confusion, we would load up about uh, 12 F-16s in a matter of two hours, fully armed, at the end of the runway with uh, air-to-air and air-to-ground configurations based on an unknown threat. There was a threat to the country, and uh, it was manifesting itself on the East Coast, but no one could tell that this wouldn't happen across the country entirely. So we did. And uh, that was a 24-hour operation that we stood up within about eight hours, actually. We had the airplanes and the pilots and uh, started a rotation. We went right into a combat footing, just exactly as we are trained. Needless to say, pretty cathartic episode. And uh, as the dust settled a little bit and we realized the loss of life Uh, certainly around the World Trade Center. I mean, this was something that was going to set in motion combat operations for a very long time. So uh, to kind of piggyback onto that is ultimately our operations were tasked with setting up combat air patrols throughout the country, and we were tagged with setting up a deployment out of Travis Air Force Base in California, there were no airliners flying. There was nothing flying. Everything was grounded. And so the military uh, did combined effort with the Navy and mostly Air Force, but we 
put up combat air patrols throughout the country, and we had the western and northwestern region. Uh, so I was one of the first uh, detachment commanders out there on the west coast when we stood up our airplanes in the uh, cow patties of Travis Air Force Base. You would think California is a pretty sophisticated place, but there's a lot of farmland out there with a lot of cow patties. We we set that up out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so we were running 24-hour operations out of there, and there were some interesting anecdotes that came from it. We actually almost lost a pilot uh, due to icing on the airplane. He lost control of the airplane at 30,000 feet in the weather, and um, he didn't gain control of the airplane until about 1,000 feet above the ground. Fortunately, he had a very resourceful and smart instructor pilot as his flight lead who talked him into basically selecting afterburner in the middle of the weather just to get some airspeed recovered on the airplane. And fortunately, he did that because he had zero airspeed and he was in a deep stall falling at about 15,000 feet per minute. So things of that nature are just part of the risk of flying fighters. And we established that operation for probably at least six months, if not, in fact, no, I take that back. I spent several Christmases out there in the cow paddies in California as uh, prosecuting these air patrols and whatnot. Meanwhile, the rest of the country and the rest of the military was setting up to deploy operations into Afghanistan, as you know. So what was the actual atmosphere like within the Air Force at the time of the attacks? And you obviously just explained to us then, obviously it was very... Everyone knew as soon as the dust settled from the attacks that it was serious, combat would change for a very long time, and it still is in present day the way it is from them attacks. But what was it like just general day-to-day? Was it just the training pick up? Was it kind of straight from um, peacetime to war as soon as the attacks happened? Well, there's a couple of things, actually, and you bring up a good point. So first of all, if I can, I'll go back to my original Air Force experience, which I know we were going to talk about a little bit. But I, I started off as an A-10 pilot flying out of England during the Cold War. And our mission was to stop the Soviet Union from invading West Germany and the rest of Europe via NATO defenses. So that was a known enemy, a known threat. and the atmosphere was that you train like you fight and you knew the threat. So therefore, we were able to tailor that training to the threat very specifically. The difference after 9-11 was nobody knew what the threat was. I mean, here, the United States was clearly attacked, but by unconventional means and a military that is designed and trained to fight a conventional war against a known threat and a known enemy. And we were literally reeling from that change of a paradigm. So the one thing that's good about our military is that we don't just sit back and any, I mean, most NATO militaries are like this. We don't just sit back and and go, wow, well, this is different. Let's just run with it. No, we try to unscrew it and try to figure it out and try to train to the nearest threat that we have. So not only did we combine our normal training, we then added additional training in flying that would be more specific to, say, urban warfare and close air support of troops on the ground. You know, commonly an F-16 was not used predominantly for close air support like the A-10 was. 
but we realized that uh, we could very well be involved in combat operations and need to execute CAS, close air support. So we not only did we execute the mission of protecting the airspace over the United States and the airspace around the president and uh, you know notable politicians, but then we took upon it ourselves to start doing training that might prelude what exactly kind of fighting we would have to do in Afghanistan, knowing that that probably was the area of operations that we'd have to go to. What insights were given to you guys that that was going to be the operational theater that you'll be heading into? A good question. I think that mostly came from the press and publications, uh, just the general message that was coming out from the president of the United States, President Bush. You know, it seemed that all fingers were pointed towards Osama bin Laden and this very ill-defined threat, but that it was emanating out of the mountains of Afghanistan and obviously, you know, the Middle East. So it didn't take a rocket scientist for us to figure out that that's the kind of terrain we'd be operating in. And we started to tailor our training to that more specifically that they would have to put special forces down and we'd have to learn to work with special forces using precision guided munitions. So that took quite a bit of effort to change that paradigm a little bit and move ourselves closer to that. So by the time Operation Enduring Freedom had uh, started to kick off, or actually the initial operations into Afghanistan, I then had moved from being the operational support squadron commander to being the commander of the fourth fighter squadron. So I had a fully combat coded, capable, and well-trained F-16 squadron that we were training for to apply close air support as well as air interdiction. We were also fully engaged in the counter-air mission over the United States and airspace protection. So we were pretty busy. And uh, so when combat operations started to, it looked like they were going to start operating out of Afghanistan, I was waiting for the message to pack up and go. And at least our, we have three squadrons at Hill of uh, operational squadrons, and I figured at least two, if not all three, would deploy. So we were pretty busy say the least, prepping. Yeah, so that you just mentioned there that you were a commander of the 4th Fighter Squadron at Hill Air Force Base, and you were expecting to deploy to Afghanistan, but was this the case? And did you get deployed to the theatre in Afghanistan? Uh, unfortunately, no, and a little disconcerting because, you know, I mean, you've seen it written many times that uh, fighter pilots are kind of training to go to the Olympics, and uh, you like that opportunity to go to the Olympics and for that timing to align, to be in an F-16 squadron that's fully capable and ready to go, much less to be the squadron commander at that time, there was a reserve unit that was co-located on Hill Air Force Base and that reserve unit was allocated to deploy and the active duty units were not allocated to deploy. So, uh, no, we did not go to Afghanistan. We continued with the airspace protection mission throughout the United States with the expectations that we could be follow-on forces and deployed to Afghanistan at any moment. But that call never came, which is kind of interesting. Disappointing, but as a senior leader later on in the Air Force, I understood it. I think all of us understood it. But still, 
in the right time in the right place, it was a little disappointing. Yeah, I can imagine. So it's like you say, it's a great um, analogy of that it's like the Olympics. It's what you're training for. It's your aim to serve the country of what you've been training for in the previous years. So when the ultimate, could you say, chance comes up, you don't get that opportunity. I can see it being a bit disheartening. But nonetheless, you did a very important mission throughout the time of the attacks with presidential protection, protecting the airspace of the United States. What type of configuration were the F-16s in when you were doing presidential protection and the patrol of the United States airspace? Were they air-to-air? Because uh, I know you said at the start there was a bit of air-to-ground configuration with the aircraft, but was it then all air-to-air if you were just protecting the president? Uh, that's a good question, and primarily, yes, air-to-air. One of the things that uh, you know was heavily talked about in the press and certainly a point of contention amongst all operators were the rules of engagement. You know, 9-11 changed everything, particularly uh, with the aspect of as an American military fighter pilot, you may be called upon to shoot down an airliner full of U.S. citizens, and that's a tough call. So we flew with an air-to-air configuration, but hours and hours and hours were spent training on not only how to conduct any kind of an air surveillance or air intercepts with all sorts of airplanes that can go fast or that can go extremely slowly, and how to visually identify them, and then how to make that right call at the right time and get the right authority and approval if you actually had to shoot someone down. Not an easy argument. I mean, pretty tough. And I I never had any specific pilots come in and sit down and say, I can't do that. They were all on board. I did have, as a squadron commander, unfortunately, the squadron had previously gone through some tough times in that we had a a midair where one of the pilots was fatally injured. And then four months later or so, we had another midair where both pilots were capable of landing their airplanes, high-risk training, and the cost of it's pretty high. I had two pilots that came in, sat down in my office, and basically said, I don't think I can fly the F-16 anymore. And my questions, obviously, were why, and they felt and their families felt that it was too risky uh, a mission. And unfortunately, <laughs> that comes with the, with the job and with the taking the oath and with flying fighters. There's a, you know, if you don't want to risk anything, you just put the airplanes on the ground and never fly them. So we had to uh, disqualify one of the pilots, and then the other one was able to actually put him into a non-flying assignment. But those are the kind of challenges that cropped up in a completely different atmosphere under the umbrella of 9-11. To include, you know, we were paying a lot of attention to what was going on in Afghanistan and, in fact, how the reserve squadron was doing on their combat deployment. And they had some challenges themselves. There's no doubt about it. So, yeah, it was tough. It was pretty busy. Yeah, uh, well, it seems like tough times indeed. And before the... uh... September 11 attacks your assignment in the United States Air Force. Your first assignment, sorry, was as an A-10 pilot at Bentwaters, as you previously mentioned. So how did you get to Bentwaters and how was your time at RAF Bentwaters as an A-10 pilot? (laughs) 
So I was a young lieutenant when I showed up in Ipswich. And uh, contrary to current reports, the weather was was pretty poor. <laughs> I guess the weather in England has gotten a little better over the years, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, it was pretty gloomy uh, setting, unfortunately, but I was a fairly decent student of history and, and knew the involvement of 8th Air Force and World War II and whatnot, and so I considered myself very fortunate to get to go fly the A-10 out of East Anglia and really cut my teeth as a young lieutenant flying a very capable airplane in some pretty weather and deploying consistently over to Germany, where we considered going up to 500 feet above the ground was getting a nosebleed. You know, that was, that was high altitude, was 500 feet. We wanted to stay down in the dirt where the hog liked to grovel. So it was a, a real challenge, especially because the expected war scenario or combat scenario was that uh, things would go chemical and go nuclear pretty fast and doing close air support against superior numbers of tanks and whatnot that would come across the East German border was not a good prospect. But learned a lot about flying and learned a lot about um, training for combat operations and thoroughly enjoyed living in the UK and thoroughly enjoyed uh, deploying to the continent as well on a regular basis. So it was a good place to cut teeth, flying a hog down low. It's a good airplane. Yeah. What well, bit more of a personal question, but could you compare the A-10 to the F-16 and uh, which one's your favorite or <laughs> the pros and cons to each aircraft and which one would you say uh, you had most fun in? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure I, I've read other analogies as well, but, you know, flying the hog down and dirty was – kind of like driving a Mack truck with a big giant weapon out front, big Gow 8 gun that could really blow a lot of shit up, quite honestly. And, then, and transitioning to, I had the opportunity to fly the F-5 for a few years prior to transitioning to the F-16. So the F-5 was kind of like a, a Triumph sports car. And then the F-16 was sort of graduating to a Maserati with a great radar and uh, it's a pretty sexy airplane and very capable in a lot of ways. So there's pros and cons to each. You know, tough to do close air support in an F-16. Easier to do it in the A-10 where you had higher loiter time and you could carry far more weapons. Uh, yeah, you're traveling slower, but that gives you some opportunities to really hang around and pick off targets for the to support the guys on the ground. So. Just terribly fun to have the experience of flying three different weapons platforms in my Air Force career. Yeah. So, well, to wrap up the interview, Sticky, what more could you tell us about your career in the United States Air Force? I believe you served uh, as a member of the Pentagon and also as a wing operations commander in Kunsan in Korea. Uh, yeah. So one of the fortunate things I got to do, a privilege, was I was selected as a mid-grade captain to fly with the Thunderbirds. And so I uh, flew as the slot pilot with the team from 1991 to 92. And that was an absolute privilege that is hard to describe sometimes because more gratifying than going around your country, our country or whatever, and making people proud of their country and stand up and make the hair on the back of their neck just come up and, and, you know, demonstrating what the military can really do in a peacetime environment like that. But um, 
more to my liking, which was more challenging, I'd say, in a lot of ways, was operational flying, which I did out of Ramstein and then in the F-16. And then down at Aviano, we flew Allied Force missions over Bosnia and Herzegovina. And then later on, after, after flying at Hill and uh, through the 9-11 experience and whatnot, I was promoted to colonel and became the operations group commander at Kunsan in the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing over at the Kun in Korea, South Korea. That was very gratifying because the motto there was take the fight north tonight. And that motto and that level of readiness still exists today because North Korea is such a precarious, unknown threat. So we were on our game and we were on our game 24 hours a day. Uh, It was a a one-year remote position and uh, command position. And I learned a lot about command and a lot about people and a lot about uh, what it meant if we really were to prosecute uh, a large land war against North Korea would be pretty tough. And um, so after that assignment, um, I was uh, sent to the Pentagon to work in what's called the J3, the Joint Staff. And uh, that's kind of crisis management. You uh, you work for a number of general officers, but basically we're all pin cushions down there trying to answer the mail on a lot of different subjects from the combatant commanders throughout the world and sourcing resources to them in their combat operations. So I did that at the Pentagon and then made a personal choice to retire from the Air Force out of there. But I, uh, I loved every day that I spent in the Air Force. And uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I'm very fortunate to have flown a lot of, like, say, three different weapon systems and known a lot of great folks. So great opportunity. Thank you for that, Sticky. And thank you for your time for coming on this uh, podcast today. It's been quite a positive and grounding insight into the United States Air Force um, atmosphere during some pretty bad times and during some fun times in the Thunderbirds as well. But Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, it's been great to have you on here. I appreciate it, and uh, I'll leave you with one fun thing. Is A few years ago, I actually uh, went back to RAF Woodbridge and Bentwaters. Oh, yeah? And stopped by the airport manager, who uh, immediately demanded that I sit down and have a spot of tea with him. And then he drove my wife and I out onto the runway at Woodbridge, uh, which was covered, you know, it's been closed for years. So it was covered in, in uh, overgrowth and whatnot. And we went down to our original A-10 operations uh, shelter, basically, uh, which was nearly demolished by uh, SAS forces from the British uh, Special Forces. <laughs> but I tell you what, just incredibly good memories of flying and living in the UK. So always our allies, of course. <laughs> Bloody good time. <laughs> all right thank you paul thank you very much you bet joseph for our listeners if you would like to know more about the topics discussed today and all of the rest of news in the air domain please visit the key aero and air international websites but for now until next week thanks for tuning in this has been a podcast from key aero your aviation destination Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.